Hi there and welcome to another Oslo podcast. My name's Todd Fraser. Plasmapheresis can be a life-saving intervention for a number of ICU conditions. Two potential methods are available, centrifugal plasmapheresis and membrane therapeutic plasma exchange. But what do we know about the applicability, utilisation and complications of the latter? My guests today are Matul Shavda and Alpesh Patel, who recently published six years' worth of prospective data from their service, run from the Flinders Medical Centre in South Australia. This podcast is sponsored by Baxter Healthcare, and we're grateful to them for their support in making this possible. Matul, Alpesh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Thank you, Todd. Alpesh, we'll start with you. Some of our listeners may be a bit unfamiliar with membrane plasma exchange. Can you briefly explain to us how it works? Yeah. So, uh, Todd, uh, basically therapeutic plasma exchange, as you know, is is removal of the plasma from the cellular component. Traditionally, it is done uh, with centrifugal method, so that the blood is centrifuged in a, in a centrifugal machine, and uh, all the components are separated by their specific gravity. But uh, from Japan and Germany, this technique of membrane-based exchange uh, evolved. Uh, what they did was they were using the membrane with higher pore size of around 330, 350 micron, so which will clear the uh, albumin and leave the cellular component. And the process is similar to CVVH uh, hemofiltration. It's just the filter pore size is bigger. So it has a sieving coefficient of one for albumin. So it will clear it. And in that process, uh, all the antibodies which we want to clear in various uh, diseases is cleared out. And then the plasma has is replaced by either 4% albumin or FFP, depending on the disease condition. Mitchell, what are some of the evidence-based indications for using uh, membrane-based plasma exchange? There are international guidelines, I understand. Can you describe yeah. those to us? Yeah. The guideline on the use of uh, therapeutic apheresis in clinical practice is came from the American Society of Apheresis called ASFA, A-S-F-A. And uh, according to my knowledge, uh, uh, it is published recently in 2019. This guideline, actually, they have tried to incorporate systemic reviews and evidence-based approaches, uh, and, and they turn it to grading and different categories of uh, indication of apheresis. So if I can describe, uh, there's a four categories of ASFA. The first one, uh, which is TCS, in which apheresis is accepted as a first-line therapy, either as a primary standalone or in conjunction with other mode of treatment. For example, GPS, myasthenia, crevice crisis, TTP, catastrophic lipid antibody syndrome. In category two, it's defined as a disorder for which AFRS is accepted as a second-line therapy, either the same standalone or with conjunction with other mode of treatment. For example, acute disseminated encephalomyelitis or cryoglobulinemia. There's a lot of this class two indications are available, but I'm just uh, discussing what are in uh, particularly important with the intensive care perspective. Category three is defined as a, where there's optimal role of AFRS is not established. But decision may, can be made by individual, by or it's called from the specialist or expert review. For example, uh, HLH, or sometimes we do with sepsis with multiple failure, uh, paraneoplastic neurological syndromes. And class four is defined as a disorder in which 
all evidence demonstrate that or suggest that that afrs is, is ineffective or harmful uh, for example it's a very interesting to uh, actually uh, in the health syndrome if you do antepartum so there is evidence of ineffectiveness or harmful but if you take it as a postpartum health syndrome it comes into category 3 Alpesh, you, uh, we were talking at the start of, uh, before the interview, um, about the background to this. Um, you have published a data set of all of your uh, cases over a six-year period and had an enormous number. Can you tell us the background to that and how you had so many cases and what the impetus was for publishing this data? Yeah, thanks, Todd. Uh, so basically, we were uh, in a unique situation as a tertiary care uh, hospital in 2014 when our hematology department, for uh, various reasons, stopped doing the centrifugal uh, plasma exchange. So uh, our department decided to develop our own protocol for membrane-based therapy. And uh, uh, the Bext PrismaFlex machine had the option of uh, adding uh, the filter and uh, do the plasma exchange with the help of citrate. And uh, that uh, we then uh, developed our own uh, guidelines and uh, protocol uh, procedure. And uh, we started slowly uh, doing some membrane-based therapies, initially for our ICU patients. And then we extended that to the ward-based patient as well, as it didn't make sense to not have a plasmapheresis service in a tertiary care institute. So because of this, uh, we uh, were able to have such a large experience. Our staff got ex experienced in it. Our nursing staff who are uh, TPE trained, they, they would work uh, in, in a pair. Whenever they do TPE, there will be two nurses who would be uh, checking, cross-checking each other because there is a lot of FFPs and other intervention plus calcium management is critical. So progressively, it became less labor intensive for the unit because of the high volume we were doing. And so when you started to look at the data, what were the common indications that you were seeing when you were doing this service? Yeah, when I looked at all data and calculated the total di different indications, so uh, we used uh, therapeutic plasma exchange for 31 different indications, but I categorized into the different disease categories. So among all disease categories, uh, neurological and hematological disease, they accounted for more than half of my, our treatment. So uh, coming to the percentage wise, we used uh, TPE for predominantly for hematological disease that account for around 30% and neurological disease account for 29%. And rest of the indication were liver disease, vasculitis, renal diseases. And there was few miscellaneous condition, for example, it was Necro, uh, sorry, uh, hypertriglyceridemia related severe pancreatitis, severe sepsis. And we also compare our indication of using TPE with previous reported literature, and which was very quite similar. Having said that, our hospital is a major referral center for liver transplant and liver failure, which explained that we had almost 15% of our uh, plasma exchange was come from the liver disease. And we simultaneously, we reviewed our practice of plasma exchange with recently published ASPA guideline. And we, we noted that more than half of, more than 50% of our indication were from the class one category of ASPA. 
Matul, how does um, how does the ICU population that we're receiving uh, plasma exchange differ from the uh, group who were non-ICU patients in your service? Yeah, as as Alpes described, that we do uh, used to do plasma exchange for entire hospital. So uh, we uh, did a plasma exchange for both ICU as well as non-ICU patient. And from our data, we compared uh, both ICU as well as non-ICU patient. So when we compared ICU with the non-ICU patient, the ICU patients were predominantly female. They received more FFP as a replacement therapy, and they had a more liver disease as an indication of plasma exchange. We also noted that there were more patients who were not receiving anticoagulation. It was quite a difference between two groups, like almost 12% of patients from ICU did not receive uh, uh, anticoagulation. And more had a patient-related complication. So I, group of the ICU had a more complications, uh, but there was no difference among the group uh, for circuit-related complications or duration of treatment or amount of exchange volume. Oh, Pesh, we heard earlier that approximately half of your patients were in the category one um, ASFR category. Um, what does the evidence tell us about therapeutic plasma exchange? How how much uh, uh, supporting evidence is there for these therapies? Yes, yeah, so for for certain therapy, uh, there is uh, quite a good evidence, like TTP. Uh, if it is typical uh, TTP, then uh, removal of Adam TS thirteen. Uh, antibody, uh, autoantibodies uh, with plasma ex, uh, exchange uh, and exchanging with uh, FFPs has a level one evidence with multiple studies supporting uh, the therapy. While in atypical uh, HUS, uh, it may not be the first line therapy. Similarly, in myasthenic crisis or in acute GBS, uh, the uh, role of plasmapheresis uh, evidence-wise is similar to IVIG. So depending on your local practice, either of it are a category one indication. So we can use that. In uh, our practice, uh, fulminant hepatic failure uh, which also comes with uh, some uh, evidence and it is classified as uh, level one uh, in the ASFA uh, category is uh, uh, has been used and uh, it's been shown to reduce the encephalopathy. It obviously corrects the uh, coagulopathy. So chances of bleeding are less and uh, it buys time uh, for a patient who is waiting for transplant in our, uh, uh, at our center. However, uh, said that the data in 2016 from uh, Larson et al. Uh, published in Journal of Hepatology suggested that those patients who received high volume plasma exchange, so around eight to nine liters of FFP in first three days of their admission with fulminant hepatic failure while waiting for transplant, uh, those who received this therapy apart from standard medical therapy had a better uh, uh, survival even if they didn't receive the transplant. So that was very encouraging data. 
uh, we do not do that high volume hemo, uh, plasma exchange, but we try to achieve as much as we can. So in, in our data, it showed at that time, this is now 10 years back, uh, uh, that in patients with uh, fulminant hepatic failure, use of plasma pharesis, that was a centrifugal-based therapy at that time, uh, was associated with improvement in hemodynamics, but no uh, improvement in outcome. Yes, uh, so the, yeah, the, in category one indication, there are uh, uh, there is a good indication to use plasma exchange. It doesn't define which way to do the plasma exchange, centrifugal or membrane based. That is more uh, based on local practice. Like in Germany and Japan, predominantly they do membrane based therapeutic plasma exchange, while US uh, and Europe. Uh, pre, uh, rest of the Europe predominantly does uh, uh, centrifugal exchange. It depends on who is leading the service. The hematologists are more comfortable with centrifugal service, while nephrologists, uh, if they are running the service, they will be more comfortable with uh, 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 dialysis uh, machine and uh, membrane-based therapy. Elpesh, that is a, a very key question, isn't it? Um, yeah. Are the two therapies interchangeable mm -hmm. or are there differences between them? Yeah, that, that was a big question in my mind when we were told to start this therapy by our hospital. And I had a look and surprising enough, uh, there, is, there is very limited head-on-head -head comparison. So I found one study uh, from 2016 uh, from Germany where they did crossover randomization of uh, patients in uh, centrifugal and membrane-based therapy for uh, an adult uh, population with uh, 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 category one indications. And what uh, they found that both the therapies were equally efficient in removing the uh, antibodies. So they measured the IgG, IgM levels. Centrifugal-based therapy had a better plasma extraction ratio, meaning that in one pass, more of the plasma is extracted by centrifugal for a given volume of blood as compared to membrane-based therapy. So that is overcome in membrane-based therapy by higher blood flow as compared to centrifugal therapy. So centrifugal therapy can start at 60 ml uh, per minute, while uh, in membrane-based, we go for 150 ml per minute as our starting blood flow. So that's how they compensate. So that, that again comes with membrane-based therapy can only be done by a vasket or a central line, while the centrifugal-based can be done by a peripheral line. So yes, they are interchangeable. They both are equally effective, but uh, uh, centrifugal-based is more efficient or has a better plasma extraction ratio. Uh, but the centrifugal therapy uh, is, uh, is more likely to uh, remove certain cells along with the uh, plasma as compared to the plasma therapy. So the platelet removal may be more theoretically, but in that study, they found that both of them have similar platelet uh, uh, removal or uh, reduction in platelets. Mithul, what were some of the key findings of your review? So uh, we, uh, during our study periods from 2014 to 2020, we had a 674 uh, TPE treatment were performed in 140 patients. 
uh, in our study, uh, bean exchange volume was 4,421 ml, which was on an average 1.25 times plasma volume. Median TP treatment per patient was three, while mean duration of TP treatment was around 170 minutes with an average of 1.25 circuits utilized per treatment. When come to the exchange fluid and anticoagulation, among all procedures, albumin was the most common replacement fluid, was around 43%, while FFP was 29%, and albumin and combined FFP was 28%, was similar to uh, uh, FFP. Coming to the anticoagulation, citrate was the most common mode of anticoagulation in around 86%, while heparin was used only in 2%. While around 9% of patient was, 9% uh, of treatment was without any anticoagulation. What sort of complications did you see in your data set and how significant were they in terms of uh, outcomes of patients? Yeah. So before answering this question, uh, there were only few studies actually published that have reported complications during TPE, particularly circuit complications. So what we noted in our data said that circuit-related complications occurred in 18.6% of total treatment. The most common of circuit complication was high transmembrane pressure followed by clotting of circuit and excess catheter dysfunction. There have been few studies that have reported both patient-related complications and uh, that was around 4 to 36%. And in our data set, uh, during this treatment, 87.2% of patients did not experience any kind of complication. The most common complication that was patient-related was hypocalcemia, which required treatment, which is think, likely due to the use of citrate as a regional anti-collection and use of FFP as a replacement food and higher exchange volume. In our practice, Severe complications, uh, I define severe complication as a uh, complication required termination of uh, treatment of plasma action, but only in 1.1% of total treatment, which was hypotension uh, and very less patient had a hypoxia. So overall, uh, severe complication was only 1.1% of entire treatment. Were you able to tease out what some of the predictors of patients who were going to have complications were? Yeah. So based on our data, actually, we dig further and uh, we uh, try to find out who can be the predictor of all complications. So we divided into circuit complications as well as patient complications. And I can tell you that there is no previous study actually has been reported risk factor which contribute to circuit complication during TPE. And circuit complication can lead to blood loss, increase the duration of TP treatment, and eventually increase the cost of treatment. So on our data set on multivariate analysis, the predictor of circuit complications were first was pre-treatment ionized calcium at a very high odds ratio, male sex, which was very surprising, diagnostic categories, and uh, overall duration of treatment. We can understand uh, actually the most interesting thing what we found is a why male sex had a more complication which was circuit related we found that male had higher odds of complication than female which might be due to longer treatment duration in 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 uh, male 
So we also compared our data uh, on sex best, male and female, and we'll try to find out what exactly is factor contributing to complication in the male. So first of all, we think it's uh, because of longer duration of TP treatment in male, which was higher than female, and higher body weight in uh, uh, compared to female. So uh, on average, uh, in our data set, the weight of male was 85 kg, while female was 73 kg. So this weight difference might lead to more excess catheter dysfunction in male. Other thing, what I was thinking about, why this different disease category contribute to circuit complication. So I think a contributing factor could be underlying coagulant state, uh, maybe increase in viscosity, disease-related hemolysis, and also use of FFP as a replacement fluid, which can contribute to uh, complications related to circuit. We know that higher pre-treatment calcium, particularly ionized calcium level, require more citrate dosing to compensate for higher calcium, which may account for more filter clotting. While coming to the uh, patient-related complication, we found from our data, data that predictors of patient-related complications on multivariate analysis were higher exchange volume, which had an odd ratio of around 9, replacement fluid, and uh, lower initial blood flow. We calculated exchange volume based on uh, actual body weight and hematocrit. So Alpes, had a, uh, Alpes has been uh, doing all this research on, uh, on uh, calculating uh, uh, exact uh, plasma uh, volume, uh, and he actually came with a very good, very easily accessible. Uh, we have chart, so you can print the body weight and hematocrit, and you get all numbers of your exchange volume. In our ex study, the average exchange volume was 4.4 liter, and which was quite higher than the other reported previously trial. So that can be possible that we, as we are doing more exchange volume that lead to more patients' complications. Also, we use FFP as a replacement fluid in more than half of the patient, which can explain that contribution of replacement fluid as a cause of patient. Although the effect of blood flow on the patient complication was statistically significant, but the actual contribution of blood flow on a patient complication would be clinically non-significant. So uh, in, in summary, uh, the contributor of uh, patient's complication was higher exchange volume and replacement fluid. While, uh, while coming to the patient complication, the predictor of, uh, sorry, a circuit complication was, uh, predictor of circuit complication were pretreatment ionized calcium, male sex, diagnostic category, and duration of treatment. Alpesh, I'll finish with you. If I'm like um, Mithul and I'm working in a small regional hospital without access to haematology support to provide centrifugal uh, techniques, what are some of the challenges that you faced setting up this service and what tips would you give to me uh, for how to go about setting up that service? Yeah, Tom, that, that is a very good question. Uh, Todd, the, the first thing what we learned from our experience is it is easily doable if we are familiar, if the nurses are familiar with their CRRT therapy. Uh, obviously, there is limitation. Only few machines uh, uh, like PrismaFlex have that option of doing the plasma uh, exchange. Uh, first thing will be to uh, develop a protocol and uh, then do some uh, procedure uh, training, which the the uh, company was quite supportive in doing that to the for the nurses and and what we learned one thing is 
it may be our local experience but uh, not uh, a, there is not a single particular specialty who is an expert in this therapy we very soon realize that it ultimately comes down to the person who is doing the procedure what do you use as a replacement fluid what do you use uh, as your anticoagulant what do you use uh, how much volume you have to do so it all come down to you have to develop your own local expertise and uh, you don't require ffp for most of the plasma exchange so that was another thing as mithul said our data shows many patient had ffp that was a slow transition to leave ffp because we we were uh, under the impression my colleagues and myself that you need ffp otherwise they will lose so the best monitor for whether they will need ffp apart from ttp or a particular situation in which ffp is required for replacement of a particular component is to do a fibrinogen level before the next plasma exchange if that is low then you add some ffp in the therapy but still predominantly it should be 4% albumin you may need a liter of exchange with ffp but rest albumin so that is very important second is the consent process for this therapy like we are as an intensivist in ward based patient if they are sent to us we are technician for that service so obviously the consent for it would be a mutual consent with us as well as the the specialist who is referred with the patient so that patient is aware of and and yes we should have a process in place because we are using lot of blood product transfusion if there is an anaphylaxis then the help should be available uh, uh, immediately so in that way icu intensive care unit becomes a very safe place for this procedure in both icu and non icu patient i am not advocating everyone should do this <laughs> but if there is no option this is easily achievable and 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 from our data actually is very very clear cut message that uh, membrane based tp is a safe procedure and is a very doable procedure in icu so uh, that was actually i'm emphasizing what always to that that's very safe and uh, should be doable in icu congratulations to you both on the publication of this data it's extremely important to people like me who are looking to establish a service to provide this uh, this therapy so thank you very much for sharing your insights Thank you, thank Todd, you. for inviting thank us. You. Thank you. Thank you, Todd. Thank you very much. Thanks for joining me on the podcast today. Get all our great podcast interviews, as well as hundreds of modules, journal reviews, quizzes, and articles by downloading our free app. Search for My Osler wherever you get your apps, or visit our website at oslercommunity.com.